You are listening to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kelly Casperson. If you're in peri or post-menopause and think your hair and skin look unhealthy, you're not imagining it. Menopause naturally affects your hair and skin. Hormone changes can affect appearance years before and long after menopause. Sylvessa is the first comprehensive system designed to restore and protect hair and skin affected by estrogen decline. The Sylvessa system is designed to restore the collagen and nutrients impacted by declining estrogen, improving the appearance of your hair and skin today and protecting against future damage tomorrow. Formulated with hyaluronic acid to visibly improve skin texture and reduce fine lines and wrinkles. Give Sylvessa by Bonafide a try today. No hormones and no prescription required. To get 20% off your first purchase when you subscribe to any product, go to hellobonafide.com slash notbroken and use promo code notbroken. That's hello, B-O-N-A-F-I-D-E dot com slash notbroken and code notbroken for 20% off at checkout. For best prices and free shipping, go directly to the hellobonafide.com slash notbroken website. This is their best offer anywhere, so check it out and use promo code notbroken. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the September Live podcast. So excited you're here. Hello to my special podcast group members who are invited with a live link to be in the audience and ask questions. And you can get that by joining our membership. Go to kellycaspersonmd.com slash membership and learn all about what you can learn in the membership. It's basically like a treasure trove of where I've put really important papers and lectures and all the podcasts that I interview people, they come out right away and you can be in the live audience with me doing the interviews, which is super fun. So I've got uh, a lot coming up. I've done like, I've like five interviews right now that I haven't even put out yet, but they all, they're all up already on the private membership. The other reason for the private membership is to help people in the comfort of their own homes become comfortable with sexuality, talking about sexuality, learning about their body. A lot of the lectures in there go into desire, arousal, orgasm, how to communicate, why the clitoris is so important, uh, all that stuff. So check out the membership. It's there to hang out with me if you want more because I love you guys and there's not a lot of people to help people. Um, I I say this like all the time. I'm like, women are 51% of the United States of America slash world. And there are not a lot of people to help them. I literally got a DM from somebody on Instagram yesterday that was like, help. My gynecologist won't prescribe me hormone replacement therapy because I'm a flight attendant. And she said, my risk of blood clots are too high. And I'm like, show me wherever in the world it's written that flight attendants can't take menopause hormone therapy. But literally, you guys, I will get messages like this daily, twice a day, saying stupid shit about why their doctors, nurse practitioners, people won't let them be on hormone therapy. So first of all, thing to know, going back on, I need to help this lady. I told her to see somebody else. Um, Transdermal hormone replacement therapy, so patch, an estrogen cream, and femring, all systemic estrogen options that aren't oral, they don't increase your blood clot risk. It is oral estrogen that increases your blood clot risk. But let's apply some logic to this because that seems reasonable. So we all know that birth control increases blood clot risk, right? And we know that oral hormone replacement therapy has an increased blood clot risk, but smaller than the birth control risk, okay? So if we shouldn't fly with 
hormone therapy because of blood clot risk. Does this mean all women on birth control shouldn't fly because of the risk of blood clot, which has not been proven to be increased, you know, like more than like, should we tell these people not to fly? Should we say flight attendants can't be on oral birth control? Should we say like frequent flyer businesswomen who are on oral birth control shouldn't fly? We don't say that to them. We say like there's a small increased risk of blood clot flying gives you a small increased risk of blood clot. I think I'm not a flight expert, but I think it's a lot more on long haul flights than like going to Chicago from Newark. But um, if we're not going to give women hormone replacement therapy because they're flight attendants, then we shouldn't let anybody be on oral birth control and fly or be flight attendants or pilots either. The logic does not hold up. What I'm saying is see a menopause specialist, understand that transdermal through the skin. And the reason for this, you guys, it's like a lot of this is just education. When you soak up your hormones through the skin, it doesn't go first pass through the liver. Putting it in your mouth and swallowing it, making it go what doctors call first pass metabolism. So it goes into your stomach, it gets goes into your liver to be processed. That increases clotting factors in your liver. You don't get that when you do transdermal of any, this is any medication, right? But have you noticed this too? Like when people don't understand things, they don't have the knowledge, they're a heck of a lot more fearful of it, right? And now you're like, oh, I get, now it's easier to remember why the oral one has increased risk of clotting, but the transdermal one doesn't. So super good thing to talk about. But point being, there's not enough education out there right now. I'm trying to make a difference. Share this podcast. <laughs> um, so it's September. It's the in the Pacific Northwest. Fall is coming. It's super cozy. I've got a sweater. I'm drinking my coffee, and I have a, so much to share with you guys today. I follow. I'm sorry, hitting microphone with coffee. I follow this person on Instagram. I recommend it if you want more like sex ed, cute posts. Uh, sex ed. It's called Your Diagnosense. Your, Y-O-U-R-D-I-A-G-N-O-N-S-E-N-S-E. -E. Um, coming to you from New York. I don't know this person. They just do great content. And I wanted to read this one from September 5th. And this one is entitled, Why Couples Don't Have Sex. So props to your diagnosis for creating these. They're super cute infographics. Number one, why couples don't have sex. Number one, unsatisfying relational dynamics. Conflict, contempt, passive aggression, unacknowledged imbalances, disappointments, and more equal a recipe for sexual disaster. This is when sexual withholding and avoidance is an unconscious relational expression of I'm mad at you. Anybody? Anybody? I, see, I hear this all the time. These are dynamics to approach ASAP. Number two, erotic boredom and lack of sexual connection. If sex is boring and unsatisfying, desire is unlikely. I've been screaming this from the rooftops. It's not that you'd have low desire. It's that you're bored. You're eating pizza for dinner every single night for 40 years. You're kind of sick of pizza. When sex is only about, I'm laughing now because this is not all on the Instagram post. This is me inserting my opinion. When sex is only about certain positions or penetration and an absence of kink, passion, or excitement, a sexual connection will never form or it will quickly fade. Novelty wears off pretty quickly. Develop an understanding of what is erotic and work on cultivating a stronger sexual connection. If you don't know, ask and explore and do so regularly. I think I think so many people, this is curious. I'd love to see a research paper on this. So many people are like really averse to the word erotic. 
<laughs> Let's Google. We need to look at a definition of erotic. Raise your hand if you are like, oh, the word erotic makes me squeamish. Define erotic. Relating to or tending to arouse sexual desire or excitement. Yeah, that's all erotic means, you guys. People think it means like bells and whistles and leathers and straps and like you do you. But erotic is just like figuring out what lights your fire, figuring out what turns you on, what's hot. And I think a lot of women are worried about, you know, the word erotic because it means like sexually erotic women, like they're out of control, <laughs> right? Or don't be an out of control erotic woman. But it's like that word gives a lot of people the heebie-jeebies. It's, it's probably going to be banned on Instagram pretty soon because Instagram likes to ban things like that. Okay, getting back to his awesome post. I think it's a his. I don't know his pronouns. Number next, mental health challenges. Stress, anxiety, depression, and other emotions will short-circuit desire and arousal. Taking care of your mental health is in service of your sexual health. 100%. So many times. So many times. Um, number next, a lack of sexual understanding about each other. Many couples have absolutely no clue what their partner likes or worse, what they don't like. Why? Maybe they never talked about it or maybe it became too scary to address. Either way, if you don't know how to turn your partner on and you're unwilling to have the conversation, then you will not be having sex or you'll be having bad sex or boring sex or no sex. I see this a lot in heterosexual couples. I think I think pretty much anything will turn you on at the beginning of a relationship and then you get into this penis and vagina sexual script and then it starts being pizza for dinner every single night. And that's not really what turns her on, but he's having great sex because that's his fantasy is just to have penis and vagina sex. Maybe not, though. He might be bored, too. We don't know. They didn't communicate. I'm making this up. Number next. Sex is deprioritized. After a longer period of time, if sex isn't intentionally prioritized, life will get in the way. Boom, 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 boom. We just say this all the time and people get annoyed because they're like, I think so many people are entitled. Like they're super entitled to like, I just want spontaneous desire and I just want amazing sex all the time. And it's like, that's like being entitled to have like an, an Olympic physique is like people work at it. I, I, I think people settle for like a fit physique, even over an Olympic physique. But it's like, you can't sit around and be like, oh, I just wish I was fit. Like the fit people do stuff about that. You got to work at it. Sex is no different than exercise. Sex is exercise. What am I saying? Okay. Uh, do, do, do. relying upon spontaneity is a recipe for a decline in desire and likely resentment if you want to have sex you have to take intentional steps to prioritize it why is everybody so adverse to scheduling sex like what's the big deal we're like oh prioritize your eroticism that doesn't seem like a problem but what you what you intentionally put more time into grows okay number next Do, 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 do. too busy if you're too busy for sex there is a problem make the time or accept that you will not be having sex this can't be a, a unilateral decision in your relationship collaborate negotiate and schedule sex uh, do, do. the next one is sexual differences most couples have a variety of differing sexual preferences from kink and fetish to time of day and frequency difference is normal differences only become a problem if you avoid them the struggle becomes negotiating and getting creative with compromising around differences so follow this guy he's actually his name's todd and he's a psychotherapist and he's a certified sex therapist so you're a diagnosis on instagram 
awesome advice, pretty basic stuff I've been saying. Um, I think a lot of times, again, I'm stereotyping, but I think a lot of times in heterosexual relationships, the woman kind of, the pressure is on her to conform to what the man wants. And I think we really lose the whole point of the conversation to be like, what do you, what, what do each of you want and how can we compromise? Right? Like instead of just having pizza for dinner, we need to have pizza and a salad. So the salad person feels like they're doing something that they are interested in. Um, and I think so many times it's like, he just wants to have sex more. He just wants to have penis and vagina. He just wants to have it before he, we go to bed. And women are stuck in this struggle bus of like trying to conform instead of being like, that's wonderful. I thank you so much for telling me what you want. This is what I want. You got to give her time to figure out what she wants. Because again, we're, a, we're afraid of the word erotic. So giving ourselves permission to like figure out what we want is, you got, it's going to take some time. Got to figure it out. My recommendation is figure out what you don't want and then reverse engineer it because we're pretty good at figuring out what we don't want. All right, on to this awesome paper that came out in menopause this week. Switching from sex to menopause. I just, this is a podcast about sex and menopause. <clears throat> and I didn't say this at the beginning, you guys. Um, this is not individual medical advice. Please consult your own doctor. I love you so much. I'm not telling you specifically what to do over the airwaves or on the internet. That's not my job. Usually not your doctor. And if I am your doctor, awesome sauce. Thanks for following me. But come see me in clinic. That's where that's where the, the legal stuff happens. Okay, this paper came out in uh, 2022, the Journal of Menopause. It's an editorial uh, about reassuring data regarding the use of hormone therapy at menopause and risk of breast cancer. Great article to print out and bring to your clinician. So... I'm just going to I'm going to read to you guys like the highlights that I highlighted that are like just basic data points for you guys to know. I'm not going to read I'm not going to read the entire editorial. Okay. What we know in the Women's Health Initiative randomized control trial after a median of 7.2 years of conjugated estrogen alone. This is oral estrogen compared to compared to placebo in women with a prior hysterectomy, no significant association with the risk of breast cancer was noted. The conjugated estrogen alone trial was stopped after participants had taken study meds for a mean of 7.2 years. With a cumulative median of 20 years follow-up, almost 13 years after discontinuation of the study medication, investigators found that the use of conjugated estrogen significantly reduced the incidence of breast cancer. It was a hazard ratio of 0.78, which means it reduced it by 12%, with a significantly reduced risk of breast cancer mortality. So even if you took hormone therapy, what's this saying? What this is saying, I'll break it down for the people in the back. Remember, if you don't have a uterus, you don't need progesterone, a progestin. This was conjugated oral equine estrogens, which is not the standard of care this day and age for estrogen. Remember, please see earlier podcast, this podcast, that transdermal is safer with no blood clot risk. So the majority of experts are going to try to get you on a transdermal over an oral. Now, I still see a lot of older women, like late 70s, 80s, who have stayed on oral estrogen because that's that all was available and they never came off it after the estrogen scare. The great estrogen scare of 2020, of 2001. <laughs> um, so there's, there's a lot of older women I see still on oral in my community. But Standard of care if you're 52, you're in menopause, they're going to try to put you on a transdermal. So we think we're doing an even safer job now than we were doing then because it's decreasing your other risks. But 
they're saying these women who were on oral estrogen alone, who didn't have a uterus, so they weren't on progesterone, they stopped their study medication. And even 20 years later, that group had a lower incidence of breast cancer. That is like the exact freaking opposite of estrogen causes cancer. It's the exact opposite. This myth of estrogen causes cancer uh, needs to be considered. Now remember, you guys, because you're smart, I gotta break it down. Looking at what risks are for an individual person versus what risks are for a population in general are very different studies, right? Like, because if, if people be like, well, for me, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, we didn't study you. You're one, you're unique amongst, you know, one of 8 billion. You have your own risk factors. That's why you have to see your own individual doctor. But on a, on a global group of people, they can make, they can uh, look at the data and say, in general, this is what we saw. Now, are some women on hormone replacement therapy on estrogen going to get breast cancer? Yes. But this is a very important point. If, if everybody knew this before they, because this is how doctors think, correlation does not equal causation. But our brains don't know that. Our brains want to associate everything. We are associating making machines. So if we get a cancer, we're going to search around in our life to be like, what caused it? What caused it? And we're not going to think about the wine that we drink every night. And we're not going to think about the cigarettes that we drink, that we smoke every And we're not going to think about, you know, all of that stuff. We're going to think about the estrogen that we're on. And we're going to think that the estrogen caused it. But a lot of times cancer is just bad luck, you guys. About 50% of the time, cancer is bad luck. Um, and a lot of the times, uh, breast cancer, any cancer can be associated with how overall healthy your body is. We know that uh, central obesity, there's something metabolically about adipose tissue. I'm not a cancer expert, but there is pretty shocking data on the rate of cancer incidence that goes up and how they think that weight and diet is a huge risk factor for cancer. Also alcohol, the huge risk factor for cancer, and we never talk about it. I think we're distracting ourselves by saying estrogen is causing cancer and all these things that we have a lot of data now to say that it doesn't. So moving on. Now let's talk about estrogen and progestogen, progestin. That's just a global word for any progesterone. Um, if you have a uterus, you need to be on a progestin to protect your uterine lining. What they did for the Women's Health Initiative was they used oral um, uh, progesterone, so a synthetic progesterone. That's not the standard of care anymore. Standard of care is micronized progestin, which is bio bioidentical for all the people who think the word bioidentical means something. Um, but so we use a different progestin now. So after more than 20 years of cumulative follow-up, conjugate, conjugated estrogen plus progesterone acetate therapy continued to be associated with a significantly increased risk of breast cancer compared to those on placebo, but mortality rates were not significantly different. So are they having a lower uh, aggressiveness of breast cancer? I think I haven't read this, but you didn't die anymore from breast cancer, but you did have a higher rate of breast cancer. They think that it's the synthetic progestin that did this. It's not the estrogen that caused the breast cancer. It's the synthetic progestin. But you can also say that, that the placebo arm was flawed in this study because the placebo arm people had, some of them had received estrogen in the past. 
And as we know with that, estrogen decreases your risk of breast cancer. So this was not a clean study. The Women's Health Initiative was not designed to look at breast cancer risk on hormones. That's not what it was designed to do. So the placebo versus the treatment arms were, were murky and not set up right to look at that. So we also have to take this data with a grain of salt. The Women's Health Initiative study was designed to look at is giving a woman way past menopause, the average age of these women was about 70, did it decrease their cardiovascular risks? Did they have less strokes and heart attacks? Turns out no if you start somebody on hormones when they're 70 plus. If you've if you've been past menopause about ten years, you aren't you aren't getting the benefit of cardiovascular protection that you're going to get if you start it when you're fifty and sixty. Okay, so they think that it is the progestogen. So estrogen use combined with synthetic progestins has been associated with an increased risk of breast cancer, whereas less breast cancer has been seen in studies associated with micronized progesterone. So the friend, there was this French population study found that women who received estrogen combined with synthetic progestin had a higher risk of breast cancer, age-adjusted, which was not seen in those receiving estrogen combined with micronized progesterone. So this basically nice review article, if you want to take away anything, don't be on synthetic progestin, which we don't do anyways anymore. That's all you need to know about this. Um, then they looked at race. He said, estrogen alone used significantly reduced breast cancer incidence in black women in addition to decreased risks of blood clot um, for black women in their 50s and those associated with vasomotor symptoms. Estrogen alone in women with prior hysterectomy was not associated with the risk of breast cancer in women of uh, black or white race in another study. So that's good to know. Now let's look at use of hormone therapy among women with an elevated baseline risk of breast cancer. So these are women with the BRCA1, BRCA2 mutations. The Women's Health Initiative found that among women with an elevated baseline risk of breast cancer based on family history, the impact of estrogen uh, progestin therapy on the risk of breast cancer was similar to women without a high risk of family history. And another study performed a meta-analysis of three studies, including 1,000 BRCA gene-positive women with intact breasts um, who did or did not receive hormone therapy. Use of hormone therapy was not associated with breast cancer risk for BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation carriers who received hormone therapy after risk-reducing BSO. That's taking out the ovaries. There was a reduced risk of breast cancer that did not achieve statistical significance for mutation carriers. So it says that these studies provide reassurance that among women with deleterious BRCA1, BRCA2 mutations with intact breasts who have undergone risk-reducing gynecologic surgery, menopause hormone therapy, at least over the short term, does not increase breast cancer risk. So there, there you go. What we don't have, and I get, I get asked this all the time, what we don't have is tons of data on what about the women who've already been treated for breast cancer. They are hungry for knowledge. We don't have a lot of studies do I have there is a Dutch study here I'm just going to pull it off my desk because it's on my desk we'll talk about this too Um, there's a a new Dutch study that just came out uh, in 2022 in JNCI Journal of National Cancer Institute 
Systemic or Vaginal Hormone Therapy After Early Breast Cancer, a Danish Observational Cohort Study. So observational cohort studies, are they're not the best. The best study is a randomized placebo-controlled trial. Send one to me if you have it on a randomized placebo-controlled trial of um, after breast cancer, putting people on hormone therapy. They are very, we, we are very hungry for this knowledge, people. Okay. Because if you think that we don't know what to do about women who are flight attendants, we certainly don't know what to do about women who um, have had breast cancer. I would say we do know what to do about those women with, with flight attendants, but the the average person doesn't. Okay, so what this what this did is it was they just looked at a chart review and they pulled all these women who had had low risk breast cancer, I believe it was all stage one or lower, and then they said, hey, over time, some of them ended up getting hormone replacement therapy from their doctors what happened to them were they did they do better did they do worse so they looked at both vaginal estrogen therapy and systemic estrogen therapy so about 25 23 percent of these women were prescribed vaginal estrogen therapy only two percent of these women were prescribed um menopause systemic hormone therapy so this is a very small study population um overall So there's like 10,000 people overall, and then 2% of them had been on systemic hormone therapy afterwards. Median age of the patients was 61 years, 77% had invasive ductal carcinoma. Non-users of hormone treatment were older and had larger tumors and were more likely to have lymph node metastasis. So the the people who ended up being on the hormone replacement therapy did tend to be healthier people. That's important to know when you look at these studies because if I'm just throwing studies at you and I don't explain how studies work and how we judge studies, you're just going to take it as like gold, as like the Bible of I should be on hormone therapy after breast cancer. And that's not what studies try to do. They try to say like, what did we learn? What's the quality of this research? So there you go. Take take everything as a, with a critical eye. But it's good to have this data. I'm very glad they had it. So over 10 years of follow-up, 16% of these group of women, of all the women, had a breast cancer recurrence. That's really good to know, right? Like what's my risk of recurrence? It's good to know. Women who are on the vaginal estrogen therapy alone, just vaginal estrogen therapy, had this same recurrence rate similar to people who'd never been on any hormones. So vaginal estrogen therapy, very safe if you've had history of breast cancer. We know that from other studies, but this study is just supporting it. So what we learned in this study. I'm just trying to find like the interesting points for you. See if I can figure it out. In postmenopausal women treated for early stage estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. I forgot to mention that was also part of the study. Use of vaginal estrogen therapy or menopause hormone therapy was not associated with increased risk of recurrence or mortality. In patients specifically on vaginal estrogen therapy and adjuvant uh, uh, like a nastrozole. What do we what do we call those? We call those aromatase inhibitors. So vaginal estrogen alone and aromatase inhibitors. We observed an increased risk of recurrence, but not mortality. I don't know if this is going to play out statistically significant in further studies. It's very provocative, but it's a very small group of people. So that might be one thing to talk to. If you're on uh, aromatase inhibitors and want to be on vaginal estrogen, run it by your oncologist. 
Most data say it's fine, but this one data didn't. But this, this is a very small group of women. And were there other factors with them that increased their risk and not just the vaginal estrogen? But this uh, association was not observed among women who received tamoxifen or those who did not receive adjuvant endocrine therapy. In the small subset receiving hormone replacement treatment, no increased risk of recurrence or mortality was observed. There you go. So studies are coming out, but to answer to answer with a broad brush, what should women who've had breast cancer, who are having hot flashes or, you know, want to protect their bones or for whatever reason they want to be on, on hormone therapy, we don't have the broad brush answer for them at this time. We need more studies. So all you med students who are listening, there you go. There's an, another study that came out. I can't quote it right now. I just wrote it down because I wanted to talk to you guys about it. Social media use is associated with sexual dysfunction. We, I mean, you kind of figure it out. That's something I talk about of like the phone is such a dopamine sink, right? Like we go, it's easy. It's distracting. It makes our brain totally light up. And people who are on social media a lot tend to have more that's what the study said, tend to have more uh, sexual dysfunction than people who are off of it. Um, we're distracted. We're not engaging with our significant other, right? All these different reasons that social media is not great for you. Um, the last thing I want to talk about today is your feelings and your fantasies. And I got this from this amazing sexological body worker, Sylvie B. You can follow her on Instagram as well. Let's see if I can just pull up her Instagram real quick so you can follow her if you want it's sex and sensibility with a with the number three for the sex so s3x and sensibility um she's a somatica institute trained pleasure coach she's got a cool story she's she's already been interviewed for my podcast i'll probably it's going to be like a month before it's out but it's in the in, it's in the private membership because i upload my interviews right away for my private members so she says a really interesting thing that I wanted to share with you guys as a treat before you come and come and see her on my podcast in a couple of months. She said, think about your fantasies, which like hard stop there. What woman has thought about her fantasies? We've all been, we've basically all been trained that like fantasies are bad, but like there's a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of interesting stuff on fantasies. Justin Lane Miller, who's a researcher at the Kinsey Institute, wrote a book called Tell Me What You Want, which is all about his research on fantasies. But um, if you think about your sexual fantasies, and she says, think about your top feelings in your fantasies. So is it being desired? Is it uh, warmth and acceptance? Is it power? Is it, you know, thrill? I'm, I'm like struggling to come up with feelings of fantasies right now. But, they, but she says, so name those, find, find out what those are. And the more that you focus on those specific feelings during your sexual activity, the more you will enjoy sex. And the farther away you are from what those feelings are in your fantasies, the farther away you'll get from enjoying sex. And if you aren't getting these fulfilled, the more breaks, remember the breaks in the accelerators? So you have a lot of breaks on if you're not getting your, your fantasy feelings fulfilled during sex. And the other thing that she says is important is like, does some fantasies are a little wild they're like not like socio-culturally appropriate which is fine that's what fantasies are you're normal but you're not going to go like act those out in in society so society has like strict like these fantasies are okay these fantasies are not okay 
right? But she says how closely your fantasies match up with what society uh, says are acceptable fantasies matters to your enjoyment of sex. Because if you constantly think like your fantasies are bad or you're shameful or, you know, blah, 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 you're not going to enjoy sex as much. So I just, I love that. I had never heard of that before of like, think about what your feelings are in your fantasies and strive to get some of those feelings created in the sex that you're having in order to enjoy better sex. I just thought it, that was awesome. Um, what else? Let's answer some questions, you guys. We'll do a couple of minutes of live podcast questions. So these are questions that come in usually on um, Instagram. I was wondering if you have any data or recommendations for negative cholesterol changes after taking hormone therapy. I'm 39 years old, been on hormone therapy for two years after a complete hysterectomy and DCIS breast cancer diagnosis 11 years ago. So you guys, so here's somebody, young female, 39 years old, who is on hormone therapy after a early stage breast cancer diagnosis. It happens. It exists. Talk to your doctor. Talk to a menopause expert. So she says, my HDL cholesterol is over double what it should be now, and my doctors want to put me on cholesterol meds. Do you have any insight you can provide? Yes. So it's my, my question would be like, are you on oral estrogen? Because oral estrogen is, again, remember we talked earlier in the podcast about the difference between oral and transdermal systemic estrogen. When you take estrogen orally, it goes through first-pass metabolism, and then that's how it affects your lipids. That's how it affects your blood clotting factors and affects your cholesterol and triglycerides. So transdermal has much less, and I'm not, I can't apply this to like everybody, but like by and large, transdermal is not affecting cholesterol levels because it's not going through your liver. Know how this stuff works, and then it, it, it makes sense what we're saying. So she doesn't say if she's on oral or not, but she says her HDL cholesterol has increased. We know that oral hormone therapy increases your HDL, lowers your LDL. That's one way that we think it helps you with your decreased heart disease risk, right? HDL is good. LDL is bad if you're going to stereotype these, these little suckers. The other thing that we know it does is increase your triglycerides. Having high triglycerides is not good. So a lot of times people think that a high HDL is good. So in this situation, her HDL went up and they want to put her on meds for HDL. Um, I don't know enough about treating high cholesterol, you guys. But what I can tell you is get on transdermal. If you're on transdermal, your cholesterol is probably being wacky for other reasons. Maybe diet. Diet's a huge thing. Um, and then HDL's not always bad. I don't, I don't know enough to know if you need to treat it. But triglycerides are something to watch if you're taking oral estrogen. Increased triglycerides is uh, not good for cardiac risk. All right. The, well, so this is in my bouncing back between menopause and sex. We'll, we'll uh, bounce back to sex one more time and then call it a day. So I was getting coached. I think I was getting coached or talking to a coach or something like that, as I tend to do. And we were talking about boredom and why we think boredom is a bad thing and how we try so hard to avoid boredom in life in general, right? So we think it's bad. And certainly if you have bored in the bedroom... You're, you're going to avoid it because it's boring. We don't want to do boring things. Our brains are like dopamine horrors and always want the, the dopamine and to be entertained. So the question that the coach asked, which I thought was very profound, was what can I learn from boredom, right? Like right now in this day and age, if we're bored, we're going to grab our phone. We do not allow ourselves to be bored. We do not allow ourselves to 
pay attention in a mindful way to our thoughts. What's coming up in our brain? What's going on? What's my baseline soundtrack that's running in there? So not just for sex, but I think you can learn a lot with sexual boredom as well. What can I learn from my boredom? That I always have to be entertained, that I judge it, that I don't want to listen to my brain. Why don't you want to listen to your thoughts? That's where your power over your thoughts come from is being able to observe them in a non-attached manner. Just being like, I wonder what my soundtrack, what's my, is my soundtrack positive in there? Is it negative? Am I just judging the entire world, including myself? You're not going to know if you don't pay attention to it. If you, boredom really allows that opportunity to come up. So both sexually and non-sexually, what can I learn from my boredom? Maybe that's your homework for this month. I hope you guys enjoyed the live September podcast. Love you guys so much. Remember, if you're my members, you get to come on and watch me do this live and type in your questions and see your doctor, get a second opinion. Go talk to your go talk to your significant other about making sex better in the bedroom. Whatever you want. This is one life. As far as I understand, send me some data if you know otherwise, we don't get a redo. So why not try to optimize, live your best life, have fun, be fulfilled discover yourself. Spend some time discovering yourself. What can boredom teach you? I love you guys so much. I'll see you next time. Hey friends, if you love what I'm doing on this podcast and love who I'm interviewing, I want to encourage you to join the private membership where you get a front seat pass with all of my interviews and you can even ask them questions. In addition, there's going to be group coaching with me and my upcoming guest coach to take this work, to go deeper, to live your best sex and love life. Join today at www.kellycaspersonmd.com membership. I'll see you on the inside.